Good to see everybody this morning, church family. I was told this morning that it's going to be in the 80s on Friday. So I hope to see all of you here again next week uh, and not on the uh, camera as all of us are sick with sinus infections from the weather changing 50 degrees every week. Uh, no, it's good to see you here, church family. And um, I'm not sure about you, but I can, I can make an honest confession that, that I am a very nostalgic person in my heart. Uh, things of my childhood, things that uh, remind me of, maybe we would call it, uh, good old days where you feel safe and home. And I would assume I'm not the only person wired that way. I think there is something in the human heart that, that at the end of the day we can use all sorts of different terms, but we long for the safety, for the fellowship, for the community, for the rest of home. And especially when we live in days that are tense and turbulent, that are uncertain, that are hard, where change, some good, some bad, is all around us, it is easy, especially for me, it is easy to retreat into that pocket of nostalgia that is always looking back for home. Well, as we come to the last part of our series, Eternity, here in the book of Revelation, we are reminded that for those of us in Christ, home is never found in looking back. It is found in looking ahead. And so I invite you, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we come to chapter 21. We have now entered the final two chapters of Scripture. We've witnessed Jesus return, the saints risen, Christ and His saints reigning, the enemy being defeated, the universe fleeing before the holy presence of God, the unrighteous receiving justice, and now comes the final and eternal chapter of the story of God and His relationship with us. Says this, Revelation 21, verse 1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first he er, heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. He will make His tent among them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. John, having seen the return of Jesus, having seen the saints resurrected, seen the millennium reign of Christ, seen the final battle, seen judgment, now all of a sudden he sees the final picture, a new heaven and a new earth, a new cosmos, a new universe. Now, 
There are discussions, is this simply a renewed version of what currently exists to its original but better intent? Is this something entirely new? Debate can range, but we know from the Old Testament, even places like Second Peter, it speaks of the current heaven and earth, the current universe, fleeing away, being consumed by fire, and God promises to create something entirely new. And in this new creation, it, John makes the statement, he looks out and he sees there's no longer any sea. Now, before you jump to, well, how strange, does God not like the oceans? He kind of put them on this world. It doesn't have anything to do with the oceans. When you look at the term sea throughout the book of Revelation, there's five different ways it's used. One of those ways is to refer to a literal body of water, but the other four refer to the sea as the origin of all evil, the place where origin of evil. They, seas refer to the unbelieving, rebellious nations who persecute God's people. In chapter 20, the sea is the realm of the dead. The sea is the primary location in chapter 18 where the world's idolatrous trade takes place. For John, quite literally, the sea, as he sat on the island of Patmos and looked out, the sea was a physical barrier to, to uh, the fellowship and freedom of fellowship with God's people. No, when John sees in this vision there's no more sea, he sees a creation where there is no more evil. There is no more separation between God's presence and earth. There is no more death. When he says there's no more sea, in that one little statement, it is looking forward to the description of new heaven and new earth as a place where there is nothing but God's perfection and goodness and life. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. And we'll, we'll see next week the description of this city. And it is a description of a city of beauty and majesty and glory beyond anything you can possibly fathom. You can take the, the greatest architectural achievements, the greatest wonders the world has ever seen made by human hands. And there's many that you and I could go to today and they're just breathtaking. But the description of the new Jerusalem, the city that God has fashioned to be our home for eternity, is a level of beauty and majesty that nothing on this earth can compare. Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return so that you may be where I am. And here, John, who once heard his Lord share those words the night before his crucifixion, now sees the place Jesus has prepared for him coming down in beauty and glory. As he's watching this, he hears, as he hears a voice, and the voice says, Behold, pay attention, the tabernacle of God is among men. Now, the tabernacle, if, if you're uh, a student, Old Testament, the tabernacle will take us back. It is uh, Moses and the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness. God gives them instruction to create a, a tent. And in this tent, 
there will be a, the, the people of God will worship around this tent. Inside the tent, there will be a holy place. And, and beyond a curtain, there will be the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant which represents God's throne and His presence on earth. Where at that time only Moses could go in after Moses, only the high priest once a year could go to this place where God's presence was said to reside as His glory would fall on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting where people met with God. It was a visual visual reminder to the people of Israel that God is with them. But the word tabernacle literally means dwelling place. The temple would be modeled after, after the, the tabernacle. The book of Hebrews speaks about the heavenly tabernacle where God's throne is. But you catch what it says here in this new heaven and new earth. Whereas today God dwells with the fullness of His presence in the place we call heaven. In the new universe that is coming, God's dwelling place is not with the angels and dead saints in heaven, it is on the new earth with His people. His people, whom we already know context-wise, who will be resurrected into glorified bodies, who will no longer walk by faith, but by quite literal sight. It's also John who writes in 1 John that we will see Him as He is. That statement will come in 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 a few weeks. Can you imagine, church family, what He sees? The dwelling place of God for all eternity is among His people. It is a kind of relationship with God that at this moment in time, even for those of us in Christ, even for the most mature in this room, we cannot fathom what it will be like to dwell with God on the new earth. We can't even remotely fathom it because we only know how to walk with God by faith. We can't even process what it will be like to walk with Him by sight. His dwelling place is amongst us. And what does it mean that He dwells amongst us? Well, look what happens. It says that that He, God Himself, Jesus Christ, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now process with me for a moment. Right now, we live in a world that is marked by tears. Undoubtedly, most of us in this room have scars on our hearts. Maybe they're scars from sin we once fell into and we feel still, still feel the sting in some way even though we know we're forgiven. Maybe they're scars because of other people's sin committed against us a friend who backstabbed us, a person who defrauded us, people who disfellowshipped us for standing for truth. We've got scars on our heart in the form of grief from loved ones who have gone through death with whom we no longer can see and fellowship and hug and speak. And we live in a world where as much as we can try to flee the reality of tears, of pain, of suffering and death, there is nowhere you can go on this 
planet, and even if you had the ability to fly off into some other part of the universe, there is nowhere you can go in this universe where death and decay does not scar. Yet there comes this moment when you and I will be in our glorified bodies and where Jesus Himself will ever so tenderly in a way beyond even the tenderness I show my own children when they cry with big tears and you kneel down and you wipe that tear from their eyes. No, there comes a day when you and I will see a hand with our name engraven in the form of a nail-pierced scar that will take His hand and gently wipe away every tear, every scar, every pain, everything that scars us in this life, it will be washed away. It's only the beginning in this new heaven and new earth. Not only will He wipe our tears away, but there will be no, no mourning, for there will be nothing to mourn over. There will be no crying or pain for the brokenness of sin will be no more. The first things have passed away. Literally, they have ceased to exist. Isaiah says it this way, He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is the Lord our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice in His salvation. It says, Behold, I create the a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the things that God has planned for those whom love Him. Here's the reality. This week as we walk through this passage, this is our, call it this way, it's our introduction to eternity. It's the introduction to our eternal home. This is the final dwelling place for all who are in Christ a new heaven and new earth, a, a place of perfection, of beauty, of majesty, a, a place that God has intentionally and lovingly prepared for us, a place where you will no longer experience a sense of, of distance or no longer will it be said in eternity, I, I just feel like I'm in maybe a dry spot. God's led me into a wilderness. There will be no more wilderness for God will dwell directly with us. There will be no more pain, tears, death, sorrow, it is unbelievable and more precise for us right now, it's not even conceivable. Do you realize, that as, I've, as I've processed this this week, when we hear these truths, it ought to elicit a, a joyful response, just like Isaiah says, rejoice in the God of our salvation. But here's the real reality. We're rejoicing in something that we must trust at the word of Jesus because you and I actually can't possibly conceive what it would truly be like to live in a world without tears and pain and death. It's the only world you and I know. 
That's why Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. It is indescribable. John sees all of this. He hears the decree from the throne of God about God's dwelling place, and then he hears God speak. Verse 5, and he who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Here's, here's what he says. God speaks from the throne, and he says, I am making all things new. Here is the work that I am up to. You see, if we were to pan back and go from the beginning of Scripture to the end, we see a God who creates, who creates a world. And in the world, the pinnacle of his creation are men and women made in his image. The purpose for whom he intends to walk in fellowship with him, out of that fellowship with him to be fruitful and multiply, to go to, to spread out over this world and to take the, the heavenly culture that they find in the Garden of Eden and, and bring it and steward the creation that God has delighted to make them for them and them for. Yet, in our own choice, we choose the tree and we choose sin. Sin breaks everything. It breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with each other. It breaks our relationship with the rest of creation. It breaks our relationship with our own selves. Scripture says we can't even understand our own hearts. Not only are we broken, we're in active rebellion, and all of a sudden you see God promise a Savior right off the bat, Genesis 3.15. He promises a Savior because God knows all things. Jesus is not simply the Lamb slain, the Lamb slain. He is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, according to Revelation. You watch as the story of redemption, creation, fall, redemption is the story of Scripture. As God moves through the Old Testament, He moves through His covenants to promise a, a, a coming Messiah who would not simply save His people from an occupying army, but would save His people from sin and death. And not just save them from sin and death, but would save any who would come to Him in faith. He would save them by grace from sin and death to a right relationship with God for an eternal home. You see, all of what God is doing and working is part of the fact that in, at the core of what God is up to right now, He is making all things new. Those of us in Christ, we may be in bodies that are still prone to decay, but it says for us we are new creations. The old sinner is gone. The new saint, holy one in Christ's righteousness, lives. I am making all things new. And he says, write this down. These words are faithful and true. What may sound inconce uh, inconceivable today, Jesus says, you take my word for it and you understand I who am faithful and true am telling you that which is faithful and true. Faithful and true meaning this. It's trustworthy. It's not false. It's genuine. It's the real deal. It's not over-exaggerated. It's not a pipe dream. It's actual, and it's going to happen. And if you're in Christ, you'll see it and live it. Write these things down. Record them down, for they are faithful and true. 
And then he said to me, it is done. Interesting language, similar to Christ on the cross. He said, it is finished. The work of redemption is accomplished now, John, in this moment that is to come for you and I today. He sees Jesus look out on the new heaven and new earth, and he says, it is done. The story of the history of humankind, the first book is over. The new book begins eternity. It says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's not just Jesus' way of saying he's eternal. certainly means that. Jesus is, the, is before all things. He is after all things. But to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, means you're the one who originated everything. Jesus is the creator. And he is also the finisher. He has sovereign authority. By the way, it says... In verse 5, the one who sits on the throne, that's a present tense verb meaning this, Jesus doesn't just sit on the front throne at this moment coming, Jesus sits on the throne right now. And He will sit on His throne until He returns, where then He will sit on the throne. And He will sit on the throne for all eternity. Jesus says, what I'm telling you today, it's not a pipe dream, it's not too good to be true. I know the only possible way you can conceive of it is simply to take me at my word, which is faithful and true, which will not disappoint. Then he says this, and in the final words of our text today, he gives two invitations and a warning. Here's what he says. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost, to the one who's thirsty. I will satisfy that thirst with water of eternal life, and it will be at no cost to the individual. I offer it freely, graciously. It says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Overcoming, it's been the theme, uh, really the, the applicational theme in some ways of all of Revelation. Every one of the letters to the seven churches ends with, to he who overcomes. Every one of those letters is an encouragement to believers who are facing situations where it would be easy to pull back, to doubt, to cower, and he says overcome. By the way, the key to overcoming, it says in the book, it's by the blood of the Lamb through the word of our testimony meaning the key to overcoming. You can overcome if you are found in Christ, saved by grace through faith, and then you walk by faith in the reality of that salvation, God's power being perfected in our weakness and His grace being sufficient for every aspect of life in this world to know, love, and follow Him. It says to the one who overcomes these things that you're seeing, John, they will inherit these things that will be their inheritance. But for the cowardly, A word used only one other time in Matthew 8 when Jesus looks at the disciples for doubting His word on the Sea of Galilee. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? The cowardly, unlike overcomers, are those who do not believe the word of God but doubt His intention in a heart. They may appear to follow Christ for some period of time, but when push comes to shove, the seed of the gospel did not fall on fertile soil in their hearts, but it fell among rocks and thorns. The cowardly, the unbelieving, 
those who reject the Word of God, the abominable, those who are polluted by gross acts of idolatry, murderers, those who kill. Jesus says those who hate others in their own hearts. Immoral, those who live out lifestyles of sexual immorality outside of what God designed to be fulfilled only in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman till death does part. The sorcerers, those who mix drugs and magics. Idolaters, liars, those who have no speaking of the truth but speak only that which is false. It says those, their destiny will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, here's the reality, church family. As we come to Revelation chapter 21 and John sees a glimpse into eternity, he sees our home. And he writes it down because for you and I, home is not found in looking back to moments of of safety and security, looking back to moments of nostalgia. Our home is not in the past. Now, our redemption was secured in the past 2,000 years ago as Jesus died and bled out on that cross. But our home is what is coming, and what is coming is described. Jesus, faithful and true to His Word, makes all things new in eternity and promises it to those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So what do you and I do with this? Well, hear the invitation today. He says, one, for those who are thirsty. Church family, we must thirst for what He alone can give. Certainly, there is, we think of the words of Jesus in John chapter 7 when He said, I am the living water, and anyone who is thirsty may come to Me and I will feed them with, or or, or, uh, give them living water and springs of life will overflow out of them. There's a salvific offer there. The thirst of the human heart for God can be quenched in Jesus. But for those of us who've been saved by grace through faith, may we not so easily forget the longing of our heart will not be satisfied by anything in this world. There is a longing in every one of our hearts that can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ and what He gives. And here's the great news. Not one of us can achieve or be worthy of what He gives. He says, I give it freely. In fact, Isaiah 55, very similar sounding passage. He says, come to me. Come to me and drink at no cost. See, church family, do we thirst, do we desire what He offers? Or living in a world where we are constantly told, no, what you really want is this, this thing, this person, this relationship, it will satisfy. Listen, there are some good things in this world. This passage is not designed to make you hate everything about this world. But there is nothing in this world that will satisfy the longing of eternity 
that according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has written into our hearts. Do we thirst? Listen, we will have full satisfaction in eternity. There is nothing that you and I will suffer loss on earth that we will get to eternity and go, man, I really wish. Go back to nostalgia for a minute. There's things, you know, you grow up, you got different stuff as a kid, toys, papers, memorabilia, whatever, and, and inevitably as a kid, you go through seasons where mom and dad say, time to clean out your stuff. And you give stuff away and you do this, and somewhere down the road, you grow up and you go, man, I wish I had never given that up. There is not one thing on this world that you and I will suffer loss for Jesus that we will get to eternity and have that reaction. No, we will be satisfied in a way we can't even imagine today. Our hearts long for this, and, and we will not be disappointed. Listen, our hearts long for a home. We are strangers in this world, aliens in this land, ambassadors for a home that is coming. And it is coming. Are we thirsty? By the way, thirst is a tricky thing. I drink a lot of water, and by and large, I like water. But sometimes I get tired of drinking water. And there are times, especially late at night if I'm staying up working on something, I can tell I'm thirsty. But I might try to eat some watermelon to quench that thirst. I might try to uh, go have some tea to quench that thirst. I might try. The reality is I know I'm thirsty, and there's only one thing that will quench that kind of thirst. It's water. But it's easy to go look and try to satisfy it with other things. Church family, there's no rocket science here today. If you're in Christ, you know the truth. There is nothing that can satisfy our hearts but Christ. And when we see this passage of eternity, we are reminded and we are forced to look at our life and say, not am I thirsty. We're all thirsty. The question is, where are we looking and what are we using to quench that thirst? First invitation is to those who are thirsty. Second is to those who would overcome. We must overcome for what He promises. Christ has promised an inheritance. Let me put this in some other terms. If we're going to overcome for what, for what He promises, are we driven by the hope of what it, we know is coming? When we think of eternity, let's stop there. Do we think of eternity? How often does our eternal home come to mind? How often do you take thoughts captive and think and ponder on the fact that in this world you will have times you feel out of place and that's okay because we are out of place? Is our eye on the prize, for lack of a better term? How often do the thoughts of eternity come into our mind as, and fill us with hope? Because listen, church family, hope is not found on the news cycle. Hope is not found in the outcome of political elections. Fo uh, hope is not found in job promotions. It's not found in relationship statuses. 
Hope is not found in fame or fortune, and we live in a day of temptation, distraction, and despair where all sorts of things promise hope, but none of them can give hope. Hope is Jesus and what He's promised for eternity. But how often does that ever come through our mind? Colossians 3 says to set our minds on the things above, to seek the things that are above. It's got a much broader implication than just eternity, but it certainly includes it. The context of Colossians 3 indicates that, that where I focus and set my mind on uh, in Christ has a direct impact on my ability to walk in the power of God and say no to temptation. So let me put it this way. How we hope and how we view eternity will directly impact my ability to resist the temptation of this world towards sin. Perhaps some of us are weak towards temptation because we're weak towards eternity. Hebrews chapter 11, describing those who walked by faith, says this, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. They're seeking a home. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from where they went out, they would have gone back. But as it is, they desire a better home, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, their God is not ashamed to, call them, to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. There is a reality, according to Hebrews, that the strength of my living faith as a believer is directly tied to how much I am seeking and longing for a true and eternal home. Peter will put it in these terms, 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you, writing to believers, to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elephants will, elements will melt by heat? Now, if we stop there for a moment, it sounds a little bit frightening. Man, the whole universe is going to come to a fiery end, and if you really understand uh, God's holiness, you better live holy. If we stop right there, it sounds a little bit fearful. Well, look what else it says. But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, those specially loved by God, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace and spotless and blameless. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. You therefore, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Here's what Peter says. The reality of the new heaven and new earth is so great 
that it impels and compels and drives and stirs us to live out the holiness of God, to, to live in the peace of God. It, it stirs and compels us to sift through false truth, to only cling to what is true and not be deceived by false teachers. Could it be that the life I live as a believer that is lived weekly is because I think so little of my eternal home that Jesus is actively making. There's a famous statement by C.S. Lewis. Some would say, well, someone's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. He would combat that and say this. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the, the uh, evangelicals who abolished slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither. Church family, you need to understand there is an invitation as we read the introduction of our eternal home today. There is an invitation to thirst and be satisfied. There is an invitation to overcome, and we overcome by hoping, by focusing, by, by, by allowing the reality of eternity to drive us. But it won't drive us if, if, it's, if it's never in the forefront of our hearts and minds. Oh, church family, how badly this world needs Christians who are driven by their eternal home. How badly our schools need teachers and students and coaches driven by their eternal home. How badly our businesses need businessmen and women who are driven by their eternal home. How badly our neighborhood need homeowners and renters who are driven by their eternal home. We can go on and on and on down the line. This is the invitation to those of us in Christ saved by grace through faith today. There's also a warning. It says those cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, they have no part in this eternal home. Instead, their eternal destination is the lake of fire. This is the reality that those who reject Christ do not spend eternity with Christ. They spend eternity in a place of justice for their life of unrighteousness. Now, if you just read that list, you may go, well, man, then nobody's getting in because when I read that list, I mean, the first item is cowardly. Have you ever been cowardly? Pay careful attention to the list. It doesn't say those who've ever done something cowardly. It says cowards. It doesn't say those who've ever committed an act of immorality. It says those who are immoral. See, here's the key distinction in, in Scripture, church family. 
you and I can stand before God in one of two places. We can stand before God in our own righteousness, our own sin, in which we are defined by and described as the very sins we commit, or by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can be found to be saved, washed with the blood of Jesus, and stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And if this is where I am by grace through faith, I am no longer ever defined or described by my sin, but by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there's a warning. Christ became our sin. He identified with our transgressions. He bore the lake of fire on our behalf. There's a warning to those who do not know Christ that today is the day of salvation, that God has prepared a place He would delight to bring you into, but you must come in repentance to Christ in faith. Many years before John would have this vision, the prophet Isaiah would write, He would say this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you don't know the Lord today and you're in this place or you're watching online, in a moment we're going to have an invitation. Would you just hear the kind and gracious words of our Lord today? Our God delights to save and there is no sinner so great, he is not more mighty to save. If you need to know Jesus today, we would love to introduce you to him. Church family, I'm excited today is the first of three weeks as we walk through the last part of Scripture, as we focus our minds on the reality of as good as good of a time as we could ever have together as a church family where we go, wow, we just felt home with each other today. It is only a small foretaste of the home that He has prepared for us that make no mistake, He who is faithful and true will bring about His word faithful and true. May we be found to thirst for it and to set our minds on what he promises. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are worthy. What you promise is good. And Lord, it is so easy to have the mental knowledge of eternity, but not to ever actively think about it. And Father, there's a direct connection for those of us in Christ. Um, we're going to think about what we desire, and we're going to desire what we think about. So when we think about your invitation to thirst, to overcome, Father, may you transform us. May you show us where our thirst, we're seeking to satisfy it with lesser things. May you show us where in our mind there is space to set our minds on you, Jesus who makes all things new, and the home that you have prepared for us. Father, if there is any in this room who does not know you, who has not been saved by grace through faith or any watching online, I just simply ask, Holy Spirit, that as you touch their hearts, they would respond to you. Jesus, we look to you in this time of invitation to worship you and follow you. It's in your name I pray.
Amen.